You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. September 3rd, 1985 was a cool fall day in St. John, New Brunswick. It was the day after Labor Day and everyone was transitioning into back to school, back to work, and back to cooler temperatures. In St. John, it was a very popular time as the Atlantic National Exhibition was taking place. The AME is an annual fair that features arts, crafts, horticulture, livestock exhibits, family entertainment, and a midway. The AME was filled with laughter, happiness, and good times. Unfortunately, though, on this date, things would take a turn for one person in particular that was at the fair, and today, 37 years later, it is still a night that is remembered with sadness, confusion, and heartbreak. Welcome to Gone But Never Forgotten, The Disappearance of Kimberly Amaro. and welcome to our 28th episode of Gone But Never Forgotten. We recently passed our one-year anniversary. Can you believe it? I really can't. I'll be the first one to admit that I was not looking at dates, and this one actually crept up on me. Huge shout-out to my friend Will, who actually pointed out that we've been doing this for a year now. Time has actually really flown by. I think that the timing, though, could not have been more perfect as we started doing these episodes weekly now, right around that one-year anniversary, without even knowing it. It's really interesting how things work out sometimes, isn't it? I mean, I was aware that we must be in the ballpark because we were getting to episode 26 a bit back, but definitely more than anything, we want to take the time to thank you, our listeners, for supporting us and listening to us every week. Yes, without our fans, we would not be where we are today. Thank you to each and every one of you, whether you're listening for the first time, have been with us from the beginning, or fall somewhere in between. On the topic of our fans, I did want to mention that we spruced up our page over on Patreon to reflect who we are today rather than who we were when this podcast was really just a dream in our minds. That's right. We have officially branded the four tiers that we have on there for our listeners as our listeners, supporters, obsessors, and partners. Each tier has perks associated with it, extending from shoutouts on the podcast to being able to vote for future episodes and get episodes early and ad-free. If there is something that you would like to see added as a perk on our Patreon, please let us know and we'll see what we can do. And remember, we appreciate each and every one of you that supports us in any way whatsoever. 
The best ways to support us are to join up and subscribe on the Patreon, purchase some merch from our merch store, or send us a one-time donation. If you ever want to know how you can help out, please send us a message. We're incredibly humbled when anyone spends their time with us and spends their money on the show. As independent podcasters, everything has been and will be out of pocket for us. So yes, thank you for everyone that has helped us out in the past and continues to do so. Thank you to our supporters on Patreon, Michelle and Stacy, and thank you also to Pat, who continues to support the show monthly as well. You guys are the best. On the topic of merch, we got to deliver some of the merch from our contest to one of the winners, Emily Marie, and she ended up picking a GBNF tote bag and mug. The products looked amazing, and we are always floored to see our logos on anything. Yeah, it's definitely pretty awesome. But what do you say we head back in time now? About 37 years or so? One year after I was born. Let's dive into this sad and unsolved case. On that cool September evening, many in St. John and the surrounding area got the family and friends together and headed down to the St. John Exhibition Park for activities of every kind. It was one of the landmark times of year for people in New Brunswick. Every year, the fair came, and every year the turnout was amazing. The event still takes place today and is also referred to as the St. John X. To give you an idea of the kind of events that would typically draw in crowds at the fair, this year's edition boasts a super dog show, a lumberjack show, a petting zoo, chainsaw carving, a mechanical bull, remote control racing, local artisan goods, agricultural shows, and contests, rides, games, and a bunch more. We didn't want to spend half the episode telling you how amazing the Annie is, especially when most of you will probably not have the chance to go, but suffice it to say that there was and is something for everyone. On September 3rd, Kimberly Amaro would be at the ANE, and so would members of her family, a bunch of her friends, and likely many, many other people who she knew and didn't know. This case is interesting because it's one of those cases that I think flies under the radar a lot for people unless they actually are looking for it. When you do a quick surface search, there's not a lot of information available out there. But when you take the time to dive a little bit deeper and learn about the case, there's quite a bit. A lot of information, a lot of misinformation, and a lot of, shall we say, circumstances around this case that are very interesting. There's a lot going on here in a case that's been open now for 37 years. That much is for sure. Kimberly Amaro, also known as Kimberly Cormier, was two days shy of her 16th birthday when she went to the fair with her friends. Her sister, Tammy Cormier Rains, was also at the fair that day, and she left early. It was suspected that Kimberly would stay behind to watch the fireworks with her friends that evening. Her mom was expecting Kimberly to arrive back home around 11 p.m. that night. Everything that I could find and read about Kimberly said that she was a very energetic girl. She loved to play the guitar, she loved to be the center of attention, and she was always full of energy and bouncing off the walls, so to speak. And that is not to say that Kimberly had the perfect life. 
not by any stretch of the imagination, but she did appear to be a happy person at her core. We would be remiss if we didn't mention that Kim did have a bit of a track record of running away, or perhaps more aptly not coming home all the time. This will come up more later as we discuss theories and such, but I felt that we would be doing a disservice if we didn't state right off the top that there was a history of Kim not coming home immediately. The unfortunate thing with this case is that there is not an awful lot of story to tell from the night that Kim went missing. In fact, aside from the fact that Kim told her friends that she was leaving them for a moment and would be right back, not much is known at all. That's right. If you've ever been in this atmosphere, you know that not a lot sticks out. People are coming and going from the fairgrounds, um, faces blend into the crowd really, and beyond that, the people that you're with, you might not even remember a single solitary face that was also there. This case definitely seems to be one like that. Well, to an extent. One thing that has certainly also happened with this case is that the police have come under a fire a lot. And personally, I do think it's very justified. One thing that you hear a lot when you talk about police and investigations is our class system. Maybe not in those words, as that sounded pretty medieval even for me to say, but it's very true. If you take a look at two missing person cases, for example, one where the teen was from a wealthy, well-to-do family, and one where the teen was from a poor or lower class family, you will more often than not see a massive difference in how the cases are dealt with. Oh, for sure. In Canada, we see that with the Highway of Tears and also murders or disappearances where the victim was a prostitute or someone who was living on the streets. Exactly like that. Kim Amaro, in my opinion, was another one of those cases. Not only did Kim have a history of staying away or running away from home, but she also came from, quote, the wrong side of the tracks. She came from a part of town that was not upper class. The Amaro family lived in an area where there were things like drugs, prostitution, and gangs. I think that that paints a bit of a picture of where Kim was being brought up and perhaps why things were a little slow to kick off when Kim didn't come home that night. The night of the 3rd was when the police were made aware of the fact that Kim was missing. When Kim was not home at 11 p.m., her mom had a feeling that something was wrong, and that feeling was amplified when one of Kim's friends showed up at the house to see if Kim was there because she hadn't seen her again after leaving the group at the fair. Kim's mom went straight to the police station and filed a missing child report. The police didn't take the case all that seriously at the start and deemed that Kim was a runaway. I suppose that based on what you have said so far, that isn't really a leap though, is it? No, not a leap, but I will always be someone who will trumpet the fact that police didn't immediately jump to trying to find Kim and trying to bring her home. Of course, the benefit of hindsight is always something, and like we've said in the past, there are probably a lot of cases where someone goes missing and is deemed a runaway, and they are a runaway. But this is not one of those cases. No, I don't even think that if she was a willing runaway, you could call this a runaway all of these years later. No, in this case, the police didn't do a whole lot of anything for a while, and if you ask me, that cost them a lot of time, 
evidence, and witnesses. Do you want to elaborate more on that? One of the main things here is what I alluded to earlier. Most people that are at a fair are acutely unaware of most of the things that are going on around them. They don't see faces, people, things going on, and all of that. And then there are people like me who are people watchers and see a lot of things. However, I don't often remember things that happened or things that I saw more than a day or two after they happen. For instance, if I saw a situation that looked a little weird when we were at a fair, if I didn't hear that some, something happened pretty shortly after, I'm probably not going to remember details even of what I saw. So I get what you're saying, but why does this bother you even more here? Well, as someone that's attended a lot of fairs and even worked as a carny when I was younger, I know what the lifestyle is like for people that work at the fair, for example. When we would pack up one town and head for a new town, pretty much everything that happened that weekend at the fair was left behind with you. In this case, before the police really decided that this was a missing person case and that something bad could have happened... The fair was gone, the people were gone, the workers were gone. And a lot of evidence would also be gone. Exactly. But that's not to say that the police haven't tried in all of the years since Kim went missing. I can't sit here and fully come down on them as an entirety. I know that there will always be cases like this one where you can look back and say, what if? What if they spent more money and time right away? Don't they say that the first 48 hours are the most crucial when a person goes missing? They certainly do. And I think that that's what bothers me the most when you look at cases like this one. As you said, police have taken steps to try and find closure in this case, chasing down sightings and tips of all kinds. One such tip came in when Canadian serial killer Michael Wayne McGray confessed to having killed Kim after he was arrested for other murders. He told police that he had buried her body on the Kingston Peninsula, a piece of land located between the St. John River and the Kennebecasis River. Not bad. Not bad. I was wondering how you were going to pronounce that one. Now you got nothing to say. Just <laughs> Kennebecasis. Yep. <laughs> police conducted a very thorough search of the area, though, and came up empty-handed. As we all know, killers often will try to take credit for more crimes after they're captured as their narrative switches to expanding upon what they see as their legacy. Whether or not McGray actually kidnapped or killed Kim may never be known 100%. That would be far from the only lead that police would spend time following up on, though, as you can imagine. There was another time, much more recently, when a local resident sent the Amiro family a letter and an audio recording anonymously. Both included many disturbing details about Kim's alleged kidnapping, captivity, and murder. From all that we could tell when we were researching this case, the information and the tapes and letters specifically have not been released by the police. Court documents, the tape specifically did detail Kim's alleged abduction, captivity, attempt at an escape, her murder, and where her remains were buried. On February 13th, 2018, though, Justice William T. Grant of the New Brunswick Court of the Queen's Bench ruled that the tape would not be released because it would interfere with police work. 
The St. John police force, for their part, agreed with that statement. The story with this letter and audio tape, though, gets even more interesting. The family, having heard the tape before it was turned into police, actually figured out who the person on the audio tape was. Whoa, that's crazy. This is like something out of a movie. Never thought of it that way, but it is really a heck of a twist. Although not completely unheard of, especially in places like New Brunswick, where people tend to really know their neighbors and locals. The Ameros went to Upham, New Brunswick as part of their own research into what they had heard on the tape, and they started to knock on doors. And for those of you that don't know the geography, we would like to mention that Upham is located about 45 minutes away from St. John. They went to Upham because the tips on the recording and the letter stated that this was in fact the area where Kim was buried. When they knocked on the door to one of the houses, though, a man simply told them that he had been waiting for this day for years. The man went out to his truck and pulled a piece of paper out from his glove compartment. There, scribbled on the paper, was a man's name. A few years prior, he was out having a coffee and talking with some other men, and he happened to mention that he was from Upham. One of the guys piped up, completely without reason, and said, quote, isn't that where that missing girl, Kim Amiro, went in and never came out? Unquote. The man, whose door that the Amiros had knocked on, had written that man's name down on the very piece of paper that he handed to Kim's family that day. He had written it down in case it ever became logical that it was in any way evidence for the case. As we said, people in small towns tend to know one another, and they knew the name immediately when they saw it. Not only that, but they knew his daughter well. The family took the recording to the man's daughter and she confirmed that it was the voice of her father on the recording. All of a sudden, it was as if lights were going off inside their heads. They realized that Kimberly had babysat for the man the summer before she disappeared and that he actually lived extremely close to the fairgrounds. This was a big lead for the family. However, this tape, which has been attributed in a few places to a man named Randy Manuel, the confession from the serial killer Michael Wayne McGray, nor anything else has brought closure to this case. The case remains open to this day, and the police, nor the family, definitively knows what happened to Kimberly Amaro. One thing that is of note, we read in a few places that yes, the tape said that Kimberly was abducted and taken to Upham. And yes, there are details about everything that took place after that. But one thing that is also of note is that there was a cabin in Upham that burned to the ground about a month after Kimberly went missing. From everything that we were able to find, it is hard to tell if police have ever checked that property or not. One can only hope that they have. Just a crazy story, right? I mean... All these years have gone by, we have had some pretty crazy quasi-confessions to what happened to Kimberly back on September 3rd in 1985, but as always, our hearts go out to the family, friends, and anyone really from the area who knows about or was part of this case. Closure is of its utmost importance, and there just hasn't been any in this case. Earlier, you were talking about theories in the case. Shall we look at them now? For sure. 
As I alluded to earlier, the big one seems to be that people still think that Kimberly would run away like this and just never come back. There are, of course, stories of this happening, but I just don't see this being one of those situations. Sure, there's the witness accounts that Kimberly had told people that after she turned 16, she was going to run away for good. Sure, there are their accounts of Kimberly running away on other occasions, but at the heart of it all, it really doesn't make sense. One thing that really stands out to me, we heard when we were listening to Jamie Splute's podcast, Finding Kim Amiro, which is a really good listen, by the way. You should go check that out at findingkimamero.com. But I digress. One of the things that came up was that even though Kimberly had a penchant for staying away from home at times, there were always people, especially her siblings, who knew where she was at all times. Kim was safe about when she didn't come home. She made sure that people were always aware of what she was doing, what the plan was, and who she would be with. That is what makes this situation different in my mind. I don't think that Kim just walking away from her friends and walking out of their lives for 37 years now is really feasible at all. It didn't fit her MO, so to speak. I'm willing to leave the door slightly open and say that perhaps whoever Kimberly was with may have been planned. There's an outside chance at that for sure. Maybe she did have a rendezvous to get away with uh, to get away with her 16th birthday literally days away. But I don't think that whatever she thought was the plan is what happened by any stretch. So you definitely feel that there's foul play involved here then? Absolutely, I do. I just can't see Kimberly being the person to ditch her life in such an extreme way. There are usually patterns of some kind before that happens. I don't see those patterns here from everything that's available to us. Hmm, that's fair. So what do you think about the serial killer confession and the tape that the family heard? Well, let me flip that back to you first. What do you think of those two things and even of the runaway theory? Well, so the the runaway theory, I feel like that's just like kind of a cop out just because she used to say that and whatever. Um, and also like teens run away all the time, even just to go party or whatever, but they always come back. So I don't really know if that's a solid theory in my opinion. Like I remember I used to say to my parents, I'm going to run away and I would come back the next day or I would go out and party all night, but I would always come back the next day. You know, and then like the serial killer confession, I just think like, in a way, like, how dare you like give the family false closure? Like, that's wrong. You know, like, you know, that happens a lot. I know. And it's (laughs) wrong. (laughs) So I don't know. But I just think that's totally wrong of that person to have done that. Well, I mean, let's 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 be fair here. I mean, are we going to slap the wrist of a serial killer and be like, how dare you lie? I know. But it's like before he had confessed to that, like that wasn't on anyone's radar, right? Or, or not as much. But now that he said that, it's kind of like, you're like, well, maybe he did. Well, and you like, know? because he said it, people schmucks like us are doing podcasts and mentioning his friggin' name on the air because guess what? It's part of the case. Exactly. You know, so I mean, whether he did or didn't do it, I think he got out of it what he wanted and we're guilty of the same thing. Yeah, so that's why we're not going to talk too much about that. But I do think that out of all of this, 
I hope that we're wrong about, you know, thinking that she didn't run away. Hopefully she did just run away and she's somewhere, you know, living her best life. You know what I mean? That's the best outcome if the family can't get closure. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think really all we can do is appeal to police, people, anyone that might know what happened here, you know, like we always do. Come forward with any information. I even throw back to like that what we just talked about with the guy with the name written on the piece of paper in his glove box. Uh, Tell someone. Sometimes the smallest little thing can be case changing. Um, I really do want to say, you know, like not to, you know, come down on that guy who had the piece of paper um, in his glove box for years. But like, if you think that it might be useful, but you want to wait till you know it's useful, just just share it. I'm sure the police would rather tell you like, no, this is nothing. Or like, we looked into it and there's no way he has an alibi. Then like, years go by and now you know like we've said a bunch of times in this episode like oh people forget people don't know you know true details anymore but with this case in particular let's get closure regardless at this point of what the closure looks like everyone that knew kimberly deserves to know what happened to her after she left her friends at the fair absolutely and i think like you said out of all the episodes when we do them we're always like telling people like the smallest bit of information can mean the world to a case can really set the case in another direction this is one of those perfect classic cases where any information at this point could be very very useful there was like probably hundreds of people at the fair so anything that anyone can remember from that day even if it sounds totally crazy just let somebody know you know So, uh, we'll give you a quick little description here. At the time of her disappearance, Kimberly Ann Amaro was 15 years of age. She was 5'5 and weighing 115 pounds. She had dark blonde hair, blue eyes, and was Caucasian. She also wore glasses. On our socials, we will provide photos of what Kim looked like in 1985, as well as age-progressed images of what she could possibly look like now. And again, if you know what happened to Kim Amaro, please pick up a phone, send an email, or do anything to help get closure and help this case to be solved once and for all. So once again, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for listening to another case that could mean the difference to a family or some people who love someone that's gone missing. So until next week, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.